Welcome to Liquidity. I'm Doug Clinton from Loop Ventures, and I'm joined by Gene Munster, one of the other partners at Loop Ventures. And on Liquidity, we talk all things venture liquidity related. So unicorn financings, IPOs, direct listings, secondaries, and even SPACs, these special purpose acquisition companies. And we actually had one of those earlier this week in the tech world with Virgin Galactic. Gene, what'd you make of the Virgin SPAC? I was thrilled because I had known about these for years and they seemed to go dormant. The thrilling part to me was to have a SPAC come back with an exciting company behind it. And uh, nice to see that the stock traded relatively well. Initially, it's backed off a little bit since then and currently has about a $750 million market cap. But it was, I think, an endorsement to a small endorsement to SPACs. But more importantly, it is, I think, a testament to this climate of looking for alternative ways for liquidity, whether it's a SPAC or a direct listing, this concept that the golden path is always to IPO. I think there's different avenues there and was uh, glad to see it. Yeah, it's a unique structure. And for anyone that's not familiar with these SPACs, it stands for a special purpose acquisition company. And basically, it's a shell company that goes through an IPO process, raises essentially a blind pool of capital from investors with the intent of purchasing part of or an entire company in the future. And so the SPAC for Virgin Galactic was raised by Social Capital, obviously a successful venture fund in the Valley that's now closed, I think, to outside LPs. But they bought 49% of Virgin Galactic, and now, obviously, the shell company has become stock tied to Virgin. In a funny way, it's a cross between a traditional IPO where the company, Virgin Galactic, is getting money from the SPAC and a direct listing where Virgin didn't have to go and do the normal dog and pony show kind of IPO process. So, I mean, do you think it's kind of best of both worlds, Gene? Is it a good mix between the two or is there anything that, you know, maybe we should look out for when we see companies use the structure? I think it's a secondary option to a direct listing, in part because just when it comes to becoming a public company, just having proper hygiene is important. And I think a SPAC, sometimes it can acquire a shell company and ultimately bring that public. It's just not as clean, I would say, as a direct listing. And so, well, it's encouraging as an alternative way to go public. I think it's secondary from that perspective. Direct listings piece is still working through the ability to raise money for that company itself. And as you mentioned, And I think that ultimately that will be resolved. And I think that companies will be able to sell primary shares through a direct listing and maybe a year plus away. But I think that that is ultimately coming. And in that case, then I'll put even more favor of a direct listing. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think historically, if you look even back in 2007, SPACs were actually pretty popular sort of before the financial crisis. And I think when capital is sort of plentiful in the market, some of these alternative structures, I think, become more 
popular. And this isn't a negative commentary necessarily on SPACs, but you know, when you're asking an investor to sort of invest blindly with the hopes that the sponsor of the SPAC will find a really good company to ultimately acquire, there is, it feels like a sort of incremental level of risk that maybe people wouldn't take if there wasn't so much capital in the market. So it's an encouraging sign. I think it's an exciting thing to have these available in the market, but I think the direct listings are something we're probably going to be talking even more about than SPACs. But let's talk about a company that used a traditional IPO. We'll go 180, and that's Lyft. They reported earnings earlier this week. I think the stock, it reacted positively, I think, initially in the news, and then it sort of faded pretty hard the day after. Gene, what are the investor reaction to Lyft's earnings, which seemed pretty decent? What does that say about the climate for these recent tech IPOs? It's evidence that investors are still trying to find their sea legs around how to play these stocks. And I think the Lyft quarter was a perfect example. And just to back up a couple weeks is company indicated a couple weeks ago that they were going to be more profitable earlier than had been expected, call it, move it up a year. And the shares traded up 9% on that news. And then they reported their quarter and, and they moved up their profitability another quarter on top of that year. So it was an incremental piece of good news related to the piece that was most critical to investors around the story is this path to profitability. By all measures, if you would have given me that playbook before they reported the quarter, I would have believed that the stock would have been up 5%. And that is, in fact, what it did in the aftermarket. But as you said, it quickly faded and has kind of bounced around since then. Still is up, call it 4% from before they made those comments a few weeks ago. But I think the takeaway is just that, is that there still is not this sense of confidence that these road, the path to profitability, you can put a lot of credibility into that. And I think it just speaks to the size of the vision that a company like Lyft or Uber has. And when you have a big vision like that, it's difficult for investors to really, as I said, get their sea legs about how to process news and timing related to path of profitability. And I think the public markets can be sort of in aggregate impatient. And it seems like a quick reversal from, like you said, the good news of a couple of weeks ago where they talked about this clearer path to profitability. And it felt like they gave at least some sign. I think they lowered their expected losses when they reported the quarter. Is it that you know they weren't moving fast enough? Is that what you think the market was saying? Or is this more just an anomaly and noise and we should sort of ignore maybe the short-term reaction to the earnings and just put more weight into the commentary about the long-term profitability? I think the commentary to the long-term profitability, there's, you know, this is a stock that is as trading on both sides, long and short end of it. And that can add some noise in the near term as well. And so I think as we've kind of started to step back from earnings here, it looks like the stock is kind of inching higher again, which to me, I think is the correct read on this. And like you said, is that the public markets are notorious for being short-sighted, quick to react. And that's one of the benefits of the private markets is definitely has a longer-term focus. But public markets have this quick reaction time, in part because they're graded on a day-to-day basis. I think that ultimately, though, you can step back and make some bets about mobility and who the key players are. And is a more focused approach like Lyft better or worse than Uber And I think you can get more comfortable that ultimately, I think that Lyft does move higher over time. You said something, Gene, that I've been thinking a lot about 
since we started together investing in the private markets a couple of years ago now, I used to think that the private markets were more long-term focused. And I think that's still probably mostly true compared to the public markets. But I actually think the other thing that the private markets have is that they're illiquid. You know, we're talking about liquidity on our podcast, but like the illiquidity in the private markets and the lack of a public mark, I think it sort of quiets the fact that there is still turmoil in the private markets. People are worried about valuations all the time. And case in point is maybe this news around Juul, which obviously is, I think, under fire for a lot of things going on with the vaping deaths and the issues that are happening, the marketing to teens. But there was news earlier this week that Altria marked down its investment in Juul. It invested at a $38 billion valuation at the end of last year. They marked it down to 24. And so... I think there is this sort of dynamic in the private markets where if there were maybe public marks, you'd probably see these things swing around a little more than is commonly reported. Definitely. I think we're in agreement that private investors have a longer term horizon and it's debatable whether that is because that's just how they think about the world or that's just the mechanics of being a private investor is you don't have that mechanism to make quick judgments. You don't have that opportunity to sell quickly. And when companies do make marks, I think that's when you see some of that. If you look at, I mean, going way back to WeWork and the valuation that SoftBank put on their money, call it $8 billion. To me, that is just a perfect example of like a private market at this point now overreacting. Great news for SoftBank. I mean, they should get some good news in this just given what they've been through. But to me, that was an example of the private markets maybe being good advocates for themselves in SoftBank's case for getting a better mark at the bottom there, but one that doesn't really, in my opinion, isn't justified. That's an overreaction at $8 billion. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think with SoftBank, the term I think people like to use is smoking their own supply. You know, They were the ones who marked up the initial investment multiple times and then obviously had to mark it down. And there's this funny dynamic in the private markets. Uh, I was talking to somebody about this where you can look like an idiot when you smoke your own supply like that and you keep marking up your money and you make yourself look like a genius, but you're really not. Or you can be a genius because if it turns out to be Facebook and you invest at a billion and you invest at 5 billion and you invest at 15 billion, you just keep leading the ultimate unicorn, then you can look incredibly smart. And so there's this really tough dynamic, I think, in the private markets where you are setting valuations kind of every round that you do, where you can either fool yourself really bad, and that's WeWork, or you can be really right. And that might be something like, I don't know, STEM centrics, which I think Founders Fund did and kind of supported most of the way through their path to acquisition. Yeah. And I think you can get a sense of when things are going too far, too fast, and people are stepping back and saying, this just doesn't make sense. And then you're probably pushing it too fast. And definitely leadership pays its dividends. And when strong hands can just keep moving valuation higher, that's a positive. But, you know, we're big believers that things that are worthwhile do take time. And so I would uh, kind of fall back to that, that ultimately the appropriate step up will run into founders who have big valuations right out of the gate with early stage companies and some with middle stage companies and that isn't always a recipe for success. Yeah, definitely. I think the lesson is don't get too disconnected from reality. And when you're a later stage company, reality is the public markets. That's the ultimate judge because it's fully liquid.
let me go roundabout back to Lyft and ask you a hypothetical question, which is Lyft hasn't been public that long. I and mean, obviously, like you said, they just started talking about this compressed or shorter timeline profitability. Do you think there's anything they could have done or maybe should have done differently when they were marketing on the IPO in terms of talking about profitability? I mean, should they have been more upfront about how long they think it might take or thinking more about what the real pathway to profitability was and maybe they could have avoided some of the ups and downs in the early IPO in the stock? My sense is they could not have done a lot different. The advice that they were getting was that investors were okay with this kind of ambiguous path to profitability as long as the vision was monstrous. And I don't think that that message was coming direct from the buy side. It was potentially coming from other VCs or bankers. So given the advice that they had, I think that they made the right choice by being more vague because that gives you some flexibility. In hindsight, they should have done a better job of getting the the straight from some of the public investors about how they thought of investing. Maybe the public investors told them one thing and they changed their mind because they can do that and quickly do it. But you know, I don't hold it against Lyft or Uber or some of these other companies because you want flexibility ultimately. At least you did a few months ago, six, nine months ago. Uh, you want flexibility in what your plan is. Now that's changed. Now when you're going public, you need some substance around that path of profitability. So I appreciate how quickly, I mean, they've only been public three quarters. That is like an incredible ratcheting down and focus on back to a path to profitability. So I applaud them for making the changes as quickly as they did. Yeah, it's really encouraging in, in the short amount of time to your point that they have really made it a point of emphasis. And I think in some ways that is trickling down into the private markets, which is the next topic I wanted to bring up, which is Lime, very close and comparable company in terms of being in the transport sector. But earlier this week, there was a report about Lime. They'll do $420 million, uh, talk about smoking your own supply, $421 million in revenue this year and generate an operating loss of about $300 million. So, you know, when you hear those figures, Gene, do you think that the revenue and the loss, is it better than you expected, worse than you expected, in line with where you thought they were? It's in line, just given all the reporting that's been done about just that market and the hardware cost, replacement cost. I think what is being largely missed kind of in the, the Lime type market, the scooter market, is that there may be a structural challenge to those type of businesses. And maybe those products can exist within bigger companies like Lyft and Uber. But as a standalone company, when you have products that are in the hands, unsupervised, in the hands of consumers, it just creates a difficult dynamic to be profitable. I mean, you could make a coffee table book that would be most entertaining out of bizarre places that these scooters are found. And I think it's just representative of, you know, is this concept of uh, giving people exposure to these. And sometimes it's for like a political statement that there's damage to these. Sometimes it's uh, against maybe tax, a statement against tax. Who knows what it is? But it really does make this model difficult. And I think that probably the best way forward is for companies like Lime to envision other ways that they can advance micromobility 
I put that in the category of non-deniable truth. We're going to find better ways to move in the one to five mile segments, really across all distances. But I think that this concept that having these scooters out in the wild and being damaged is going to force these companies to think about their businesses different and find other avenues. You know, maybe it's create a platform where you know you have your own scooter and they service it and charge it during the day and you can drop it off at different charging stations. You don't have to lock it up or you know who knows, maybe in other ways where you can take friction out of the transportation system. Maybe it's a different type of vehicle that is more robust, but the current iteration is really strained to work. I want to dig into that concept of scooter lifespan because I think it's really important for Lime. But before I do that, do you have a favorite image or picture in your mind of the most crazy place that you've seen a scooter deposited? Oh, yeah. I drive past one every morning when I ride my bike into work. And it's off of a bike path in Minneapolis. And it's been there for a few weeks. It's in a tree. I don't know how they got it up there, but it is uh, pretty entertaining. Yeah. I'm a fan of the show Silicon Valley, also the region, but they had a skit in the most recent episode where this guy rides up on a scooter and literally immediately as he stops to start to talk to the person he's meeting, he throws it into a recycling bin and the bin just closes on top of it. (laughs) Perfectly well played. Yeah. It's hilarious. But I think the point of this scooter mayhem, right? I think if you look at the numbers and what some of the founders of these companies have talked about, Three, three and a half months is sort of the average lifespan for these scooters, which typically is not enough time to generate payback on the scooters. Do you think we can get to a place where these scooters are maybe lasting six, seven, eight, nine months? And the model then actually becomes, I think, really attractive when we've looked at some of the numbers. But do you think we can get there? I don't know. And the simple answer is I'm optimistic because I think that there will be forms of micromobility that I do think this concept about this kind of unsupervised, they're out in the wild. I think that that is, it's even different than typical public transportation because you think about like a train or a, a city bus, there are people who are there shepherding those experiences along. And so what I think ultimately is going to happen is there's going to be a modification. It's not going to be look like the existing scooters that we have today. I think there'll be some modification to it that will get us to that kind of nine month lifespan that we need to get to profitability. Yeah. These things need to be bulletproof, really. Speaking of bulletproof, let's shift to kind of the last topic we had on the docket, which is there's a handful of themes right now that I think are sort of bulletproof in the eyes of the market, both private and public equity markets. And it's marketplaces, fintech and subscription software. I think anything that falls in those categories seems to have a really good reception in the market. And I don't think it's a coincidence that most of those businesses, those types of businesses tend to have pretty high gross margins naturally. And we just had earlier this week, a new unicorn minted called FAIR. It's a marketplace for retailers to buy wholesale inventory with minimal risk. So there's actually kind of both a marketplace and fintech element to it. And Gene, what I wanted to ask was actually, we've covered some marketplaces in the past public ones, Melly, eBay, Amazon has a marketplace. And I want to ask specifically on Melly, where I think it's been one of the best performing e-commerce stocks of the last several years. What do you think for that particular sort of marketplace model made it so successful? They started with what works in the US doesn't completely work in Latin America. 
And their founders, U.S. educated, they had a good sense of what was going on, obviously, with Amazon. And the way that I would describe it is they took everything that was great about Amazon and everything that was great about eBay and combined it. That was kind of the the harmony that really got them escape velocity. So, for example, everything that was great about Amazon is they quickly got market share. They were recognized as leading market share, but they also did a lot to curate what was the site. This is before eBay was doing that, but they were kind of playing a heavy hand with some of the sellers. They were selling some things direct too. But what they got right with eBay is the logistics in Latin America is very different than in the States. And just the payment process too, it's kind of similar. There's a lot of similarities between that and China, but you know it's not a particularly well-banked continent. And I think that they played well in finding ways to allow for the transactions, whether it was be in person or they started Pago. They were early at getting that going, which Amazon wasn't doing that, for example. eBay had PayPal. So the simple takeaway is it's the classic example of taking a big concept and then narrowing it down to your very specific level and just having total focus on that. And they knew how to do that and took the best of both worlds. I think that's exactly what FAIR is doing. So I'm glad you gave those examples because it feels like they've built this marketplace. They've really dialed in on, you know, who is someone that has a retail shop, online, offline, how can we best serve them? And actually these marketplaces, they almost always seem to touch on this financial pain point. Like eBay, there was this friction around payments. They figured out how to beat that with PayPal. You mentioned Melly with Pago. And so I think they're always with these marketplaces, when you can combine solving that customer problem and ease the payment friction and what FAIR is doing is they give, I think it's net 60 or maybe even a little bit longer in terms of payment terms and then also easy returns. If something doesn't sell at your store, at your retail store, they're kind of bringing in the best of both worlds. So the valuation, you know, this is a two-year-old company, I think people might say that seems crazy, but I think this is a pretty good comp to some of these other successful marketplaces we've seen. It's going to be a fun one to watch. Love it. Let's end it there. This is the Liquidity Podcast. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.